Changing conversations. Thanks for checking out another episode of the Idea Fountain. I'm Julie Pilot, and last year I was invited by my friends at Summit Series, shout out to Elliot Biznow, to be a part of a group vacation in Kenya. It was a trip to Sarara, which is about an hour flight outside of Nairobi, that would include the opportunity to see wildlife, learn the culture, and spend time with the local tribes. I felt like I had to go. Technology is changing the world so fast, I didn't know if I waited five years if this opportunity to connect with tribal culture would still exist. Sarara is owned by the local Samburu tribes and operated by two brothers, Jeremy and Jaffe Bastard. Some have called them the real-life Indiana Jones. After my trip last summer, Jaffe ended up being in L.A. about a month later and hit us up to see if we wanted to have dinner. I said, we could take you out to dinner or... You could come over to my house for dinner and tell your stories to a whole bunch of my friends. Luckily, we did that. We taped the conversation, and I hope every single person that was there at this dinner has a chance to visit the magical place of Sarara and contribute to the unbelievable transformation and revitalization that's happening with the land. And I hope this is a place you'll want to visit too. With that, Jaffe, let's start by painting a picture of what Sarara is. So we live on a community conservancy in northern Kenya, which is about a million acres. I think it's about five times the size of L.A., we have a, a sort of small portfolio of, of high-end lodges out there, which is all based on, on supporting that community and that land. And it's for anyone who's, who's willing to, to make the schlep to go all the way over there, it's a, it's a beautiful place in very, very rich nature with very traditional, intact society and community. You know, it's just one of those things where we, we are very determined that it doesn't become just a tourism destination or somewhere where you go to tick boxes to see an elephant or to see a samburu or to go on safari. It's a, it's a much, much richer experience. And the way we design these trips and this fabulous partnership with Summit that we have is to make it as integrated as possible so that every day you're, you're sort of doing something new, which is which is entirely educational, but fun while you're doing it. and we try and sort of plan it out so you're pulling a whole story together. By the time you finish this trip, you, you sort of got a really holistic understanding of what that is. If it's, again, going back to just a box ticking, ticking, ticking exercise, you're going to come back and say, well, I had a wonderful time in Africa. This is something that's designed to, to actually really get under your skin and, and um, change your life, become part of your life become part of your memory forever that it definitely did and i mean i can't believe the story the history of everything that your family's been through starting with your father tell people about how you guys became connected to sarara um in the 50s 60s the price of ivory rocketed um and it was these massive but very marginal areas that were getting affected um the worst so in the area that we were in, there was a population of about 25,000 elephant using that area. That was reduced over the space of 15 years to less than 500 elephant. And it was my father and a guy called Ian Craig who actually used to hunt up there in the, in the hunting days um, before it was banned in 77. They were sitting on a rock and, and they saw one of the last herds 
actually be rounded up and, and, and massacred the whole lot. AK-47s, about 10 guys just shot the whole lot. Babies, mums, everything. That really changed them in terms of their view of, of how wildlife was going to have a chance on the African continent um, forevermore. And the message there was really that unless indigenous peoples were really inspired and, and helped and incentivized to protect that wildlife as a, as a valuable asset that would span a lifetime instead of putting a bullet in it to get an ivory um, market price out now, then, then it just didn't have a, a, a future. So my dad cashed everything in. Um, I think he managed to raise about $100,000 um, from selling everything he owned and moved myself and my brother. Um, we were, I was 10, Jeremy was eight, into the middle of a, what was effectively a, a war zone in northern Kenya. And we went there and he built this, the original version of Sarara, which is just a little camp. There was no roads, there was no airstrips, there was nothing at all but this beautiful, beautiful space with no animals in it and, um, and, and lots of insecurity. So the, the original lodge was, was more of a stabilizing factor than, than anything else, and, and everyone just thought he was absolutely crazy. Every, you know, you take two little kids and a, and, um, and a family up there, and, and fortunately he had some very, very loyal supporters that sort of backed his vision. And the conservancy was actually formed in 97 with the full, full sort of backing of the community themselves. That land belonged to the community. It was their initiative, it wasn't anyone coming in saying, okay, well, we're gonna put you here and wildlife there and do this and do that and say, we're gonna acknowledge and, and really respect your way of life, but but help you look at a, a different way of how to protect wildlife. Um, so Sarara is, is sort of a, an evolution from that point in a sense um, that we've been there for 21 years now. We're back up to about 8,000 elephant, which is remarkable. And that's not necessarily from breeding. That's just because an elephant is so smart that they just know how, where they're safe and where they're not. And the minute we started stabilizing wildlife, et cetera, and we were able to put security teams in place and it wasn't as easy for, for people to come in and, and shoot things, you know, the whole thing just started to restore itself and, and become what it was 70 years ago. And so, yeah, we're, we're in a, this wonderful place where the community are actually recipients of more revenue than any other community-owned project on on the continent um our elephant are coming back as a result of the elephant coming back we've got all the recovery species and impalas and warthogs and as a result of that you get your predators back leopards and hyenas and stuff like that and fabulous herds of giraffe and and people are prospering from it they're, they're getting access to healthcare. they're getting access to to security education water all sorts of things so it's it's been a remarkable journey but it's it's uh, we've got a long way to go I have so many questions about those early days, but I think before I even ask them, <clears throat> I think it's important for people to understand what the Samburu culture is like. Um, there are many different cultures in LA and people that are descendants of different cultures, but this culture is very much the same as it probably was a thousand years ago. Right. Um, could you explain a little bit about what that's like? So the Samburu are Nilotics. They came down, came down the Nile out of actually as a, a, it was the Maasai that came down the Nile um, out of northern Africa. And there's unwritten theory that they may be descendants of the lost Roman legions and um, they have very strong Jewish ties. But as they sort of settled, uh, you know, in, in East Central Africa, etc., they focused mostly on the pastoral land. They came with goats and then started trading cows with, um, with early colonialists, etc. So livestock was, was, and still is, always their, their 
prime way of life. It's what feeds them, it's what, how they measure their wealth, how they store their wealth. As that tribe started to grow and fraction um, in, in the sort of Maasai areas, the Samburu, who were a lesser, a lesser clan, were actually sort of split off and they kept traveling until they hit North Kenya. That was about 450 years ago. They are nomadic pastoralists still, you know all about this. Um, nomadic pastoralists, they are still very warlike, but they, they maintain unbelievable sort of social fabric and, and identity and, and structure. Um, a lot of it that we as the West don't agree with, but once you start getting in there into the weeds of it, there's enormous amounts to learn. Um, and they've been there for 450 years in a, in a pretty untouched manner and still living extremely traditionally and, and you know, with those social bonds and functions of, of pulling water out of wells every day to give to their cattle and their villages and still moving through that land and, and managing it as custodians, etc. We're just in, a, in an unprecedented uh, phase right now and that the modern world is now on their doorstep. What was it like um, when you were a kid having those first connections with the Samburu? I mean, uh, was it learning Swahili? Uh, how did you build trust? So I think that, I mean, you know, the African continent has a, well, many places have horrible histories of, of, uh, of colonialism, etc. So the minute a white family arrives in North Kenya, um, the immediate reaction is deep mistrust, quite rightly. And I think there were some very forward-thinking elders in there, and, and certainly, you know, the relationship between my father, Ian Craig, and those elders, and, and sitting for a long, long time and discussing what a collective vision would be like in terms of, you know, how could people who understand what the bigger world looked like help them on the ground, etc. And they became open to that, and then it's, it's really been a 25-year relationship based on trust, and that's, you know, that's the foundation of, of all of that. For us as kids, I couldn't tell you acutely how it affected us because it's all subconscious, you know. Um, but pretty, pretty damn lucky, you know. I think to 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 be brought up in that way of life and and understand all those nuances and that connection with nature and the connection with the ground itself, and um, and I think that's ultimately what inspired Jeremy and I and what connected and, uh, and made us commit our entire lives to to the the prosperity of this and this vision and, and wildlife and people and, and a very humble sense. So I think, yeah, definitely those early days and that, that exposure is, is, is what led us to this point where we're, we've got a big old mission, but we're committed and it's, it's a good one. Will you explain a little bit more about how Sarara works? Um, I know it benefits the local tribes and a lot of the Samburu now work there. So Sarara, is a, a, just as a tourism entity, the way it was structured very deliberately is that um, it would always be a community asset. So there was no kind of ownership from our part. Uh, but we would come in as, as, as the skilled partner in terms of, you know, a, a Samburu doesn't know why we stupid Westerners need three forks and two wine glasses and, you know, booking charts and all those things. So... We came in as that technical partner and we were able to sort of create this tourism facility and bring people out, but but X of every dollar that was spent was going back into a community trust. So, you know, for whatever people were paying to stay at the lodge, a big chunk of it was going back into a community trust. The trust is 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 made up of a of a board of trustees that are elected locally by the community and all the revenue is split sixty forty into conservancy operations and then and then what the, the community deemed that they need. As, as critical measures, etc. So education, healthcare, um, support for the women's groups, um, 
security, all those things that I spoke about a bit. And then the other 40% is going back into maintaining roads. And, you know, the remarkable thing is, is that we've got probably 240 employees up there now, all from the community, all learning about currency in a sustainable fashion um, and real real sort of ownership coming through that process. You know, we've got some young guys who started quite a while ago now who will be the leaders there. You know, that's our ultimate um, goal is for those guys who started in that um, in that realm without those skills to actually take this thing on themselves. And, you know, and, um, you met Robert and Philip and, and everyone like that. And, you know, those are the future leaders. It's almost a bridge. So is almost a bridge for that community to, to enter what this world looks like in a, in a sustainable manner and, and learn a different skill set and be employed and gamefully and, and um, but without hurting the culture that they come from. You know, we're very, very sensitive to that. We're not, we're not there to change anyone or, or, or say that people should be living a, a different way of life. It's just saying, well, life is changing. It always has for everybody. You know, we can, we can work with you to, to make sure that's, that's soft. How do you navigate the balance of helping tribes but not tipping the balance of nature? For example, when I was there, one thing I experienced was the rainy season in Kenya had just finished, but it didn't rain at all. There was extreme drought, and the locals had already lost 45% of their cattle. Of course, my first thought was, how do we get them water? Um, but that's not the answer. If nature doesn't take its course and the cows don't die off, they'll overgraze the land. Working with your father at Sarara, how did you figure out how to maintain that balance? So I think the last, the last 20 years was very much about frontline con- conservation in a, in a typical sense. You know, people were still killing each other. They were killing elephants. It was highly, highly unstable. So it was about security teams and, and you know, protecting elephants and uh, very frontline stuff. Whereas now, or, or rather the next 20 years, is all, is all going to be about human development. So, you know, there's far more people, there's far more cows, there's far more goats, there's there's different intentions you know that the tribe is now being affected in, in many many ways we have to remain extremely sensitive on one hand to the to the systems within that culture that have preserved it for so long but also understand where people are going we we say right well there's so much emphasis on education but but a young samburu guy or girl who's been educated is not going to go back into a world where they're herding cows all day right. you know they're going to want to see what else is there in the world so I think it comes full circle back to an elephant, you know, in terms of if someone is afforded an opportunity to go to school or go to wherever it is to pursue a career, the thing that has allowed them that opportunity is an elephant. And as they transition out of sort of nomadic pastoralist ways, which is probably inevitable to some, some level, you know, and, but if they can keep space for their wildlife and their wild world, then their prosperity <coughs> will, will continue to grow. And I think a lot of... NGOs, aid organizations will, would come into an area like that and just look at it and go, we've got to help these people, they're poor. But they're not. The reason they, they, they have singing wells, which is where the warriors go and they, they dig these enormous wells in the ground, which you saw, etc., is not just because they need water. It's a, it's a meeting place where they exchange stories and um, you know, where, where everyone has a function within that and they get to sing to their cattle, which is the most important thing to them in the world. And a lot of people would look at it and say, well, you're having to walk 
10, 15 kilometers to get water. We need to put a well in your village. Suddenly you put a well in the village and you're disrupting a 450-year-old way of moving, um, which is the way they sustain themselves. Now you've got no ablution or access to utility of any anything. So you become unsanitary, you know, you introduce health issues. So a lot of those quick fixes that one would think God, people need this or people need that, it's, it's, it's far more complex than that. And it means there's no Band-Aid fixes. There's still... There's still difficult stuff within that and you see mass cattle die-offs and drought you know we, climate change is affecting us there's no doubt about that but we can be clever about how we build structure around this um with the community themselves to to move through these these things in a in a sustainable manner but but most importantly in a way that that environment is kept intact and that people can actually evolve at their own pace you talked about the singing wells, and that's something I'll remember for the rest of my life. I mean, it's unbelievably beautiful, and it's fascinating because they're um, man-made wells, and depending on how severe the drought is, um, water may be two people deep, or it could go all the way down to seven people. And they'll get into the wells for sometimes five hours at a time, and in an assembly line, the person at the bottom hands one bucket to the next person, to the next person, into the trough so the cows can have water. And they're singing their tribal songs, which I guess is like a lullaby. While we were watching it, it was really fascinating because, I mean, even carrying a bucket of water and throwing it over my head three times, I'd probably be exhausted, right? And they kept going and they kept going. And then while we were doing it, the cows were going towards towards the trough and it was kind of becoming a mosh pit and they were all crowding in and one calf that still was probably 300 pounds got edged towards the front and pushed over and it went down the well like where the people were <laughs> and it could have you know kicked somebody in the head it could have done a lot of things <laughs> but I guess that's fairly common and the reason I bring it up is because of the issue of elephants falling in the wells too, baby elephants, and often being orphaned. And um, I'd love you to tell people the work you're doing now with the uh, sanctuary. So we, we set up uh, the Ritedi Elephant Sanctuary, which, we've, which became operational last September, I believe. I've spoken a lot of this evening about elephants because you know that's it's it's that's what it's all about. You know, as as there becomes more space for resource like water, etc., there's more competition um, between elephant and people, etc. So there are always cases where baby elephants would fall in wells and, and mothers don't have the capacity to actually get them out, um, or the mothers are shot, or they're abandoned due to drought or something. So we founded the orphanage to basically take in these orphans and 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 rescue them and rehabilitate them and then reintroduce them over time back into the area that they came from. A few years ago, if a, if a baby elephant fell into a well, you know, the community would come to us saying, your elephant fell into the well, it's destroyed our well, and they were furious. And, you know, every, all the warriors would come and, and it was a whole thing. You know, and today, because everyone's pulling the pieces of that puzzle together um, and, and there are so many beneficiaries of, of, of elephants, you know, they go in and it's the community who are rescuing that elephant out of a well now and, and it's the community who are running the sanctuary and the, all the herders are community members uh, looking after baby elephants, etc. So it's a new project, but it's really a flagship. You know, it's really a, 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 something to for the Samburu to say, right, we care about these animals. Right. Um, 
I mean, I just love, like, with the visit, I think no matter what you're interested in, if you're interested in ecology and the environment and conservation, there's things there. If you're interested specifically in the elephant sanctuary or the orphanage, that's there. If you love working with kids, there's so many exciting things coming with schools. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's really so fantastic. You know, I'm curious, too, to hear more about, it's interesting in Western culture, everybody's running around saying, oh, the iPhone's 10 years old, it's changed everything. But we had a little bit of a ramp-up period before smartphones, right? You know, whether it was pagers or answering machines, dial-ups and stuff. Now, a lot of these nomadic <laughs> tribes that have been fairly isolated for hundreds of years and still are living in temporary structures made of sticks and things like that, have phones. Like, how is technology affecting the culture and where do you see things going? Well, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't... I think it would be, be very naive of me on two levels to give you any acute answers on that you know one because it's not our place to stop technological advancement or um, or mute it in any capacity that's that's a person's choice you know what they use and, and how they and how they use things etc um, secondly we know it's going to happen we know it's going to change and you know historically you know you can read about the evolution of of indigenous people and and um, and cultures from the beginning of time and, and a lot of that has been very unsustainable um, and you know especially in a, in a, in a culture like the Samburu when if there's rapid shift that's when you see nine out of ten times you'll see a real breakdown in, in, in the society and then you're allowing things like cr crime and disease and you know real abject poverty creep into things so this is not just about technology it's just about rapid evolution so to speak um, for people who don't necessarily know how to cope with that. So again, I think it's, you know, it's about putting in the infrastructure around them, with them, to help people understand what those devices do and, and really understand them in terms of using it responsibly. You know, I have no doubt that a very traditional, in fact, it's a great example, we just employed a guy called Sami Lasaita who grew up herding goats in the most traditional fashion till he was 12. Um, and then he got his first crack at school when he was 12. He went, he went to school 12 to 18, and then he actually got offered a scholarship at Harvard. Um, he went and did a, a, a business degree at Harvard, graduated, came back, ran a big tourism company in, in, um, in Nairobi, and then heard about what we were doing. He's from the area. He's, he's 38 years old or 39 years old, and he's come back full circle. He knows exactly how to use technology. He's well-paid. He's very worldly, very bright. He's going to be a massive leader for that community. He's from there. He's a Samburu. We've given him a very, very senior position. Um, I think that's a great example of how someone can come back into a place where they're so tied to on a, on a, on a sort of cultural and, and you know, understanding level. He will be able to communicate that, communicate that journey, um, and educate and, and work with them to, to put systems in place to, for more people to do that. And again, I think as, so long as that advancement happens with, with a real care for the environment in the process, then I think everyone has a shot there. But just to close that off, you know, we don't have the answers on that yet, and it would be very naive to assume that we did. 
I think where we are right now is we, we've we've just put a a really clever team together to do a to do a sort of blueprint study over the next twelve months of uh, you know sourcing as much information from around the world that's applicable to this to to really start sort of thinking about what that looks like in a in a very real sense. Yeah, I think when we were when I was there, yeah, I think we were when, we were, when I was there, we were talking, and you kind of had a vision, mm -hmm. right? Of if you are using technology to build out an area, maybe first would come some sort of medical clinic, right? And maybe a school or maybe a bank, like in those order. I don't know if it was in that order, but I thought it was interesting. Well, it's it's very big picture stuff right at the moment, but you know if if you know the general sense on the ground is that people will stop moving uh, you know that nomadic life will 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 cease to exist maybe not entirely but but you know people will start settling they'll start building houses and again you know this better than you know if you fly to the Masai Mara you'll see a manata with a hut in the middle of it with no access to anything and you're just destroying big landscapes without really thinking about how you know it's that concept of going out not in type thing yeah, everything gets cut down, and, and yeah, it's not people's fault. It's just that you know they they're being exposed to things that that make them stop living entirely traditionally. You know, one of the conversations we're having with the community is about sort of creating a a, a beating heart, um, which would be the start of a permanent settlement, but in it would have a it's kind of a, a sort of cutting edge building, but. You know, in it would be access to healthcare. There would be adult illiteracy centres in there. There would be education. There would be artisanal trade um, expertise. There's all sorts of things, but in one place, which is a real sort of heart for people to settle and learn skills and and be integrated. And it's still very culturally orientated. Another example is that we've got the one of the main power lines that's just being built from Lake Tacana, a massive wind farm, is coming through our southern boundary to distribute power into into the rest of Kenya we're not going to stop that you know we're just not going to stop it we can't we don't have the power no one does we could look at it as an opportunity you know if we're building you know if we're looking at technology from all around all around the world why aren't we putting a solar farm in there selling power back to the grid but using that that revenue to pay school fees and and um, you know all sorts of stuff so there are ways that we can use modern thinking and tech to start creating sustainable semi-urban infrastructure I guess yeah and I think a lot of people forget that Nairobi is just uh, half a day's drive down the road and Nairobi is like a bustling metropolis with five million people and gorgeous skyscrapers and crazy loft condos and Apple music Apple music <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean if, if you it's one of the biggest tech hubs in the world it's a beautiful bustling metropolis with like beautiful skyline and just crazy bustling so I mean it's one thing to to think that oh maybe they, they don't have access to that but really you just got to hop in a car and drive 10 hours to and you're in a city with mm -hmm. 5 million people yeah. well it's good timing now that you piped up Julian because we were talking about this uh, outside about the first night that we were at Sorara we were hanging out in the lounge, and I was wiped out. And so we were staying in, what do you call the structures at Sarah? Do you call them? The rooms. Yeah, the yeah. rooms. Oh. Hey. <laughs> in Africa, they call them rooms. Uh, but we were staying on the furthest one away, about four down. It was very dark, and I asked Julian if he'd walk me back to the room because he had the flashlight. And so he did, and we got back to the room, and he said, yeah, do you care? I was talking to some people if I go back for a little while. I'm like, 
absolutely, go ahead. And he took the flashlight back. And then at that moment, it sounded like Jurassic Park outside. <laughs> and it, like, all I had was my, I mean, there were lamps in the room, but all I had was my iPhone flashlight. And I would step out on the balcony, and I couldn't see anything. But I heard the craziest noises and trees crashing and stuff. And I didn't know what to do. I couldn't text him. <laughs> and I wasn't going to go out by myself, and I was a little bit panicked. There was an emergency whistle. I never used it. But anyways, the worst part about it was when he finally came back, I was like, I don't know what was going on here, but I was freaking out. And I didn't know how to get to you. And he's like, there were no elephants down here. We almost got killed. There was an elephant stampede with 18 elephants down where I was. There were no elephants there. Anyways, so the urban legend has it that there were... 18 elephants that came up to where they were at the lodge. Somebody got spooked. Julian thought they were about to stampede. And Jaffe bossed up on the elephants and yelled in Swahili, it's all right, we are here. And they all chilled out. Uh, but anyways, I mean, just for people, there's so many people here that said they've never been to Africa. Or like, I'd never, even though it wasn't camping, like I just never spent that much time in nature. Talk a little bit about paint a picture, about what it's like, you know, your relationship with animals out there and what you've experienced. You know, when you go to somewhere so young uh, and it's so remote, that becomes your, your education, your playground. Um, you know, we didn't have access to TVs or tech or any of that stuff. So, you know, our, our world revolved around what was around us. Um, we'd also spend a lot of time in the Maasai Mara when we were small, which is sort of wall-to-wall -wall animals. You know, we thought the whole world looked like that. We get to, to what is Sarara now, and there was nothing there, you know, which was a massive shock to us. Um, and as we understood why that was, but then over the coming years, started to see these elephants, which are remarkably intelligent animals, really understand that they were safe there again and come back in and trust us as humans. That was a real learning curve for us, and we got a very sort of very deep look at, uh, at how their emotions and how their, their family structures and how their intelligence works. Still through that process, you know, we started making great friends with certain animals because they were the ones that originally came. And I remember, you know, over the years, there were a few of those ones that were, were shot and poached and that, you know, that hurt us like it was a, it was a brother or a father being killed. It, it really hurt us because we had that very deep bond and, and certainly in terms of what they represented for that project. You know, they, they, they were coming back on board and they were restoring nature and they were creating viable opportunity and revenue for people. We were utter scoundrels. My father had a hell of a time keeping us under control. And the way he did that was just say to, he would just say to the son, we would take them. And they would take us and Jeremy and I would go and sleep in, in the mountains for four days and go and learn about everything through their eyes. So, you know, we'd catch dick dicks and sleep under bushes. And so, yeah, we got a pretty visceral kind of um, learning experience and education in, in, in that world from a very early age and, and again when you're that passionate about something on the basis of an animal or a space that is much bigger than yourself um, and much wiser yeah you have a very special relationship with it and what about going back to the Samburu what is something from their culture or a tradition or something that you know even if you weren't living in Kenya you'd want to take with you I think everyone should come and come and ask them themselves. Yeah. There's not a blueprint for that place. There are so many lessons, but we always find people come and they spend time and they always have their own things that they pick up on and that affect them very deeply. And that, that could be a multitude because there's so much wisdom in there. 
you almost take mm-hmm. back what you need. Mm-hmm. You come with your own deficiencies. Exactly. And then yeah. you leave with uh, like all these little depressions in you kind of flatlined or elevated. And come back with a good newfound different respect of how you're going about your daily life. Um, I, I want you to talk a little bit about how people can help, but first I want to see if anybody else have any questions. Is poaching still an issue? Poaching is still happening, but certainly not on the scale that it was. We're seeing way more human-wildlife conflict issues, um, which means that there's way more competition for space. Um, you know, the core of the conservancy itself we're good, but we're still part of a much, much bigger rangeland where people are, are competing for resources. Um, and there's there's funny things now as well. You know, a good example is uh, people are going to markets and they're buying cheap Chinese torches, um, which have a sort of range at night from maybe here to that that green thing on the wall there. And the reason, you know, they never ever used to move at night. They were always in their villages asleep, and they would they would go to bed at, at dusk and wake up at dawn. But now with access to that, that technology and they're on the phone to their buddies and they're moving at night and they haven't got the range to actually see if an elephant is there or not. Um, and they're all armed. So, you know, they'll come around a bush and they've got their torch and they surprise an elephant. The elephant surprises them. They put a few AK rounds in it or something and it runs off um, and then dies somewhere else or, or, unless we can get to it and treat it. We're seeing a lot more human wildlife conflict yeah so you know i think that i think there's massive massive efforts being done on a global level to to curb the ivory and rhino horn trade which are working slowly um whether we've got enough animals to sustain it i don't know but i think yeah like i said that the problem now is way way more about human development and and you know if that's if that pressure continues to increase we we know there's only going to be one loser and that's nature how are you able to protect them you said you guys have a million acres like and granted, now you, I think you said that the elephants are up to 8,000 now. How do you keep the poachers out? People. So that the, the people who live there are The community are the, are the custodians of that land. And as long as they're incentivized and they want to protect elephants, they're the best. Mm-hmm. They're so the were best they implicit sig- before? When we got there, absolutely not. They had no reason to protect an elephant because they associated it with, with violence. And it was a lot of, a lot of it was, was Somali poachers coming in from from the northeast and they would come down heavily armed and they would raid villages and they would shoot elephants and people on the ground were going we just need to get rid of these things and and then they won't come anymore Mm. um and as soon as there was the mechanism put in place to actually get rid of those the bad ones you know now it's just all community intelligence um and and you know there's a fear factor people don't want to come there because there'll be retaliation because those elephants are worth something alive and that's the the real message in there. We still have we still have a security team of sixty seven people, and they're on foot patrols and and intelligence and and rapid response stuff. And you know, there's still a lot of that going on. But you know, over a million acres, it's really the community who who protect it. Did you see that photo yesterday that Hugh Grant posted of Donald Trump Jr. with the elephant tusk? I've seen it a thousand times. Where did that happen? Um, I think it was in Zambia or Botswana, maybe. Southern Tanzania or that, Is that like legal game hunting? Some African it? countries still allow le- uh, game hunting, yeah. Okay. Um, it's on its way out, but, you know, it, do- it does happen, yeah. At the end of the day, who profits from that? Like, you said the guys on the ground make 400 bucks, but, like, somebody up the ladder is making thousands of thousands of dollars, so who, whose pockets does this line? So, the, 
it's actually it's very it's a much much bigger discussion in terms of the trade itself. You get a trigger man, and then you get a you get a middleman, which is normally local, and the middleman will move it into out of the country basically, and then it will go into more and more. It's now going into very organized gangs or extremist groups. Um, you know, and by gangs I mean people who are running drugs, and they're criminal cartels that are running drugs and humans and all sorts of stuff. Illegal wildlife is just a a fraction of that extremists are, are using it to fund their efforts and the the end consumer i mean china and and the u.s is are the two biggest ones u.s is second to china but not by far i mean did you have a question yeah um so what does sarara mean i have a few questions sorry what does sarara mean did somebody in your family name it and for somebody like myself what is a recommended stay of sarara is it three days is it a week is it two weeks like what do you recommend for someone who you know, jumping first, you know. So Sarara means a meeting place in Ma, which is the Samburu language, and it's the name of that place. It was always historically a meeting place. So again, it was them that named it, and, and we loved it, of course. Um, you know, I think the way that um, Julian Julian did it on one of these summit trips is 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 the funnest way to to get introduced to it and learn about it. And that's a week long, um, excluding travel. Um, and there's all there's all sorts of stuff you could tie on to the back of it for three or four days, etc. But, you know, what we've loved about our relationship with Summit is it's bringing us very like-minded, very warm, open, honest, intelligent, committed people. Um, and that that is the sort of international community that will help us carry this into, into something. And then the last thing we did, we went to, it's Lewa Downs, mm-hmm. um, which um, was about a three-hour three hour drive from Sarara, and that's where... We did. Uh, we primarily did the safari trips, and it was unbelievable. It was exactly like the Indiana Jones ride at Disneyland, uh, and uh, I mean, we, it, it was. I mean, it was unbelievable. Um, and we were really cruising. It was like Magic Mountain. I loved. I loved those rides more than anything. And the first night we were there, we were in a, a truck that saw the Big Five in one night, and so it was. It was really lucky. It was a lot of fun. What are the Big Five? A lion, leopard, buffalo, elephant, and rhino. I hope everyone here or everyone listening gets a chance to visit Sarara. Until then, you can follow Sarara on social media. It's at Sarara Camp, S-A-R-A-R-A Camp. You can donate to the elephant sanctuary there. It all matters. How much does a baby elephant actually eat in one serving? An elephant's drinking three gallons every three hours. Um, co-nurse, like if one elephant uses its mom or another elephant mommy has no... Um, they, they might adopt, um, but it's very rare. And, they, and that would have to be a very old, experienced mother. Um, but the new mothers wouldn't, wouldn't co-adopt, no. But each feeding is... It's quite a bit of money, right? Like yeah, it costs us about $600,000 a year to run it in its current capacity, yeah. Thanks so much, Jaffe, for sharing these stories and uh, the amazing work you're doing at Sarara in Kenya. It was such a life-changing trip for me on so many levels. And thanks again to everybody listening to the Idea Fountain Life-Changing Conversations. It would be amazing if everyone listening could share the Sarara message with at least one friend, if their model of conservation, revitalization, and protecting local culture can spread, the world will be a very different place.